Radio by and for the community. WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming live at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. You make community radio possible. Thank you. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. A healthy option special with your host Rhonda Feynman is up next. Good morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman and welcome to this healthy option special. Our guest today is author and wildlife biologist Marcy Cottrell-Hull, and as a wildlife biologist, she has written stories on behalf of things that have no voice, the wilderness and endangered species. But then, she found herself having to apply this advocacy and concern personally, leading to the creation of the book, The Gift of Caring, Saving Our Parents from the Perils of Modern Healthcare, which she wrote along with geriatrician Dr. Elizabeth Hextrom. Before we discuss the gift of caring, which is our subject today, it's important we note at least some of her credentials. Marcy Cottrell Hull is an award-winning author of four books. She's written numerous articles for the New York Times, LA Times, Reader's Digest, Nature Conservancy Magazine, and many other publications. Her book, Wings for My Flight, The Peregrine Falcons of Chimney Rock, and her newest book, The Gift of Caring, Saving Our Parents from the Perils of Modern Healthcare, have each won the National Christopher Award, an award given for books that affirm the highest values of the human spirit. Her work has also received the Oregon Book Award, Booklist Editor's Choice, and the New York City Library Best Books Award. Marcy Cottrell Hull lives with her family on a farm outside Portland, Oregon, and is here with, with us today by phone from the West Coast to be on WERU. Welcome to Healthy Options, Marcy Cottrell Hull. We're, we're so glad you could join us today. I'm happy to be here. That's great. So um, I want to just start with, uh, with you, l- let me just say the name of the book again, because it'll, it'll set up the whole, the whole idea of what we're talking about. The Gift of Caring, Sar- Saving Our Parents from the Perils of Modern Health Care. And I think we know that um, with all the baby boomers and with uh, the aging population that we have, that um, I think one of your reviewers has called it the uh, the. St- Silver tsunami, the silver tsunami, and I think uh, Dr. Ekstrom says that as well in the book. So um, what we're dealing with here is uh, how are we going to help ourselves and help each other as we age as a population? Would, would you say that that's, that's what we're doing? I, I, yes, I agree. And the statistics don't look good um, from what I've uh, learned now, realizing that the People over 65 are the fastest-growing segment of the U.S. population. Every day, 10,000 people in the country turn 65, and the fastest-growing segment of that is the over-85 age group. So they're saying in, by 2030, that's not that long from now, there'll be 7 million people over 65. That's all those baby boomers. So while I wrote this book, as I saw taking care of my parents, it's also going to be millions and millions of us in that same age bracket. And absolutely, these things. 
No, no question. And um, so, you know, I'm read, I read this book, and it's, it's a, a very beautiful interweaving of your story, which you write so beautifully about your parents and, and uh, their, their journey. And then in, interspersed is some of the uh, ideas of uh, Elizabeth Ekstrom and the idea of uh, what geriatrician, uh, what that kind of medicine is. So perhaps we can... Um, we can start a little bit uh, talking about what um, you know. What what is healthy aging? Let's let's start there. Let's start with with that. And and where where have we gone wrong? <laughs> All right. Well, I think you know what's kind of interesting is that I really think of aging now. They're starting to call it um, almost five chapters. And healthy aging um, definitely is important because with. Um, doing the things that Dr. Ekstrom talks about in the book. We can add years to our lives. We can keep our brains healthy, everything we want to do. But there does come a time when a lot of those things just are going to start, our bodies start really aging. And so if you think of chapters, think of the first chapter being when you're a child growing up. The second chapter would be um, you're becoming, you know, from 20s through middle age, growing your family, your careers. And the third chapter is where millions of us, or a lot of people are now, and that's early active retirement and the, the uh, golden years, so to speak. And then a lot of people have the misconception, because this is the first time in history we've had an extra chapter. And a lot of people think that after the third chapter, you may just go to sleep and pass away, and uh, if you have your will in order, everything's fine. Well, unfortunately... For the vast majority, it's not going to happen that way. You're going to enter something that we're thinking of as called the fourth chapter. And that's before, that's beginning when you become more frail, when your health, no matter what you've done, starts to kind of decline, little things grow to bigger things. And this is the chapter that we really need to address in our society because discussions about living with frailty are pretty much virtually absent from the popular media from political discussion and, and professional education. And this is a chapter where I saw my parents who had done everything right. Until they were 80, they were skiing, and my dad was scuba diving, and he was an orthopedic surgeon. But when you hit that chapter, all the supports that I was sure would be there to pop them up failed them over and over. And that's the chapter where we see so many people now, and there'll be millions more of us, and it's not a happy one the way it's set up. So um, I, I think that's really interesting because you talk about that and we get introduced to your family. And I, and I just have to say that when I was sending out information about this program in the last, uh, the last week or so, I have gotten more responses and more stories back about, I can't wait to hear the show because I'm taking care of my 86-year-old sister. Right. I'm taking care of my 90-year-old mother. I'm, and I'm finding that the nursing home is not taking care of her, or I'm finding that the, my medical doctor doesn't know what to do with, with him, my dad, or whatever. Um, Maybe you could, when you introduced your family, we really got that sense of vibrancy and, and as you said, skiing and, and building things and being a surgeon and, and your mother being totally active in the community and doing all the wonderful things that we think are healthy and, and part of, part of uh, keeping ourselves healthy. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's the big um, delusion so many of us face, and we keep our heads in the sand thinking it's going to be like that until we pass away. But now 
with millions of us going to the, you know, very good chance we're going to live into our 80s or even 90s. Um, those are the years where it all, as they said, it, it fails us. And um, most people end up spending, you know, a year, two or three years of their lives uh, being cared for or in a nursing home. And of those people who have long-term care, 70% will use up all their life savings. Um, but we haven't talked about this. We don't want to think about it. And yet I think it's crucial we think about it because, and the reason I wrote this book is, as you say, it is universal. It's everything my parents experienced was, is just so universal. But the corollary to that, the thing that's important to know is so much that I saw of the suffering is preventable. And we can change the system, and I think we have to change the system and make it so much better. We know what to do, but it's not being done. So let's talk about a little bit about what 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 we need to do and what um, and what 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 went wrong. I, how, how can we help? Well, I think what goes wrong is first of all, there's so few people in the country that really understand um, this phase of life medically. Um, what another very interesting and scary statistic is, like in 2012, there were only 6,700 geriatricians in the entire nation. And so what is a geriatrician? Well, that is a, already a, he or she is a medical doctor um, and already an internist, board-certified internist or family medicine practitioner. And then they've had additional training on top of that of geriatric medicine. And there's also geriatric nurses and geriatric nurse practitioners, geriatric pharmacists, but they're all in short supply. In fact, three years ago, only 75 doctors went in, across the country went into geriatrics. Very, very sad-looking wow. statistics. So, and the other scary um, uh, thing to consider is only 3% of all medical students take one class in geriatrics. So we're completely under-educated um, in this phase of life, about this phase of life. So that sets us up for problems. And plus, much of what the symptoms are of other problems that are preventable are written off as just, just old age. And there's a great uh, misunderstanding of that. And so starting off on that platform um, is a problem that uh, that's why we wrote this book because it's the first time outside of medical journals that this information has been available to the general public. So let's talk a, a little bit about, um, well, I'm, what the, Dr. Ekstrom is a, ger, a geriatrician, and um, she was writing about all of the things we might think of that would be good to keep us ourselves healthy. A lot of exercise, really important, a lot of Tai Chi, which she mentions in great detail, which is wonderful. Um, uh, diet, eating well, staying creative, keeping that community engagement going on. And she talks about that as, as aging well. And then we start talking about even when you are starting to fail, when perhaps your mind is not as sharp or your body is not uh, functioning as it did earlier, those things are still important. And yet, if a lot of times, that is not what uh, someone would experience if they're in, in going to the medical doctor, finding out that something is wrong, uh, perhaps a, a, a drug will be given versus some of these other prescriptions. And, and, and you could tell us a little bit about how that, how you experienced that and, and what that was like in your yeah, life. I found um, a number of things that were uh, 
diagnosed or said as being just old age and had a lot of suffering that absolutely were treatable or preventable, <clears throat> and millions of people are going through this right now. And you touched upon the one about drugs, and this is a yeah. huge problem, and, and it's called polypharmacy. And polypharmacy is defined as the concurrent use of several drugs or consuming a number of drugs at the same time, and it's a special problem for when you get old, and yet... Older people have more medications than any other age group. And so what's interesting is that um, that your chance of getting an adverse reaction when you're 70 is seven times higher than if you were 29. And these things, the drugs can become toxic to you. They, what they're saying is that if you are taking two drugs um, at a time, your chance of undesirable interactions are 5%. But if you're taking eight drugs at a time during a day, your chance of a side effect is 100%. 100%. Let's, let's just the, sink in for a second. Yeah. yeah. If, if you've looked at the medicine cabinet of your uh, family member, think about that, 100%. And so what are the common problems of polypharmacy? Well, and these are the ones that's a problem because a lot of people think, oh, it's just a being aging. It's confusion, depression, fatigue, um, dizziness, urinary frequency, all of those things. And what happens is a lot of times if you go in for those, you're treated with another drug to treat the side effects. Symptoms. And the problem is the drug drugs itself. And so these symptoms are routinely and erroneously dismissed by providers and by family members and even patients themselves as being, this is just how I feel when I go grow old. And that's entirely incorrect. And it's entirely preventable if of understanding about the dangers of polypharmacy, which affect one out of two people over 65. Ooh, Marcy. <laughs> we have a lot to think about here. Um, <laughs> let's just let that sink in for a moment. So I'm, I see this in, in my practice as well. Um, people come in and tell me their doctor says, well, you feel that way because you're just getting old. That's how you have to expect to feel. And I especially see it, and in, it actually starts in the early 60s. People who are coming in who are now 62 um, are telling me, well, my doctor said this is part of getting old, but I'm 62. And it's fascinating um, you know, that, that that is happening, I think, even earlier than, than you might think. We're, we might see that it, it, you think if someone is 80, well, you're going to feel that way. But even in an 80-year-old uh, an and above, things are happening that are treatable. And that's where a geriatrician, I think, from, from what I'm reading, is really important because they are looking at the individual. They are looking at the whole picture of, of what it is to keep us functional and keep us in, as independent as we can be. We, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another reason is it's, it's been it was so gratifying to me to write this book because, as you say, it's my story of our family going through this together in a kind of a 14-year journey. But every, other, every two chapters is what I wish I'd known. And these are the ones written by Dr. Eskrim that give us tools. It gives us tools we can use to... Um, if we fall into the pitfalls, how do we get out? And how do we keep ourselves and our loved ones from falling in? So it provides the patient piece, which is going to actually help the doctors too, and if you learn how to advocate for yourself and your loved ones <clears throat> in, in this situation. 
And one thing about polypharmacy, of course, I saw it with my um, own mom. She was, and she finally was transferred to a geriatrician. We went in because she was, what were the symptoms? She was growing more tired. She was, my dad had passed away. She was discouraged, uh, fatigued, could get dizzy. We worried about falling. And then what happened was the geriatrician sat us down and looked at her drug list. And then she started doing something I wasn't expecting at all. She started crossing out one drug after another, after another. And she explained and she said, unless you're a geriatrician who sees this kind of thing and works with this all day long, you don't have this really, this understanding. Removed so many of the drugs and said, your mother will probably feel much better, have more energy, be cognitively improved, and that's exactly what we saw. And then the other thing that no one knows about, and it's the first time ever um, we have in this book, is something called the Beers List. Yes. And the Beers List is, I think, I'm so excited, it's one of the appendices. And what it is, that Dr. Beers, back in 1991, was a geriatrician, and he recognized that many of the drugs that seniors are on have very undesirable or even dangerous side effects. And so together with many geriatricians, and they've refined this over the years, they've come up with a list, it's now 10 pages long, of all the drugs seniors shouldn't be on um, but are routinely prescribed. And there's a key of every uh, interaction and symptom, and so, but only has been found like in the um, medical journals. So for the first time, we had the head of pharmacy working with geriatricians to provide the beard list the name of all the drugs, generic and the trade name, and all the side effects written in layman's terms. So you can go to your doctor, or if you're in the hospital, and you see them, a loved one prescribe these drugs and say, can't we have a safer alternative because blah, blah, blah. And that has been tremendously helpful to lots of people, and it's a great tool. I want to just, I, this is great. I'm going to print this out, and I think everyone should, but I'm, I'm just going to go with a really typical one. Maybe I can uh, do one of them. Is that a, from the book, from appendix mm-hmm. number one, Advil, something that people are prescribed regularly. So Advil, one of the, uh, co- the code says it can increase the, ri- increase the risk of GI bleeding, peptic altered disease in high-risk groups, including those over 75. Then it also says a potential to promote fluid retention and or exacerbate heart failure in seniors with heart failure. Or, and in addition, it may increase the risk of acute kidney injury in persons with chronic, chronic kidney disease, stages four and five. And also, it can exacerbate existing ulcers or cause new ones in people with history of gastric or duodenal ulcer. And that's, I just... You know, it's one of the A's that, that called out to me that we're familiar with. But that's a whole list here of other ones that are even more esoteric and more specific to particular um, illnesses that somebody may be on. But I'm just pointing out that there's even that generic over-the-counter. Well, what could be wrong with taking that? Mm-hmm. Everyone, mm-hmm. It's everywhere. Um, I think it is a, a very brilliant um, thing that, that you've all done by putting that in here. And if you've just joined us, by the way, I'm Rhonda Feynman, your host on the Healthy Options Special Program today on WERU Community Radio, and we're speaking with Marcy Cottrell-Hole, 
co-author of The Gift of Caring, Saving Our Parents and the Perils of Modern Healthcare. We're discussing uh, aging well, and we're discussing about the kind of care that uh, is required as we... Uh, as we age, and some of the pitfalls that we're finding in our modern <laughs> medical system. So when uh, you're the ger ger geriatrician, which again is, is someone who specializes in, in these kinds of things, working with, with, uh, with uh, seniors, I don't even, you know, the words, we have to get the good vocabulary, right? Because <laughs> in, our, in our, I think in our, um, in our uh, youth-oriented culture, People don't want to hear those words associated with themselves. Um, have you? Did you? Did you find any of that come up? I've I've spoken to someone about about that, and they said, "Well, I'm not a senior. Well, you, you kind of are, but I'm not old. I don't like geriatrics. I don't like that word. It makes me feel old." Right. I think there's tremendous ageism in in our culture, of course, and I think that's just going to create a real problem because people will say oh, this book isn't for me, uh, I'm healthy. And I think that's what's really, really interesting <clears throat> to me is that we keep, as I say, our heads in the sand about this, and yet we have the ability for the first time in history, you know, baby boomers have made history all the way through, to write and craft what the fourth chapter is going to be. But first we have to be aware and accept the fact there is a fourth chapter yes. in our lives because we're all living so long. And... It's not good right now. There's so much misery. There's so much suffering. And until you get in it, and um, you don't believe it really happens. And, and as we say, the doc, there was an article in the Journal of American Medical Association a couple of years ago called Crises in Modern Medicine. And the one major crisis is um, living with frailty is, causing, is going to cause so much more suffering and cost and misery but because we have no discussion and we're not talking about it. And yet, and our system is maladapted to address it. We have lots of specialists, but these specialists provide disjointed specialty services. Um, we tolerate routine errors and medications. Um, we disdain individual preferences, and we pay, provide little support for paid or volunteer caregivers. At the same time, what most older people want is comfort and function and meaningfulness and purpose in their lives and living at home. That's not happening. And it'll take us facing this, that this is going to be a huge problem in our society, this silver tsunami, as you said, and then doing something about it, becoming empowered, writing this chapter, making it meaningful, and having an aging revolution. Right now, that is not happening. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the specific experiences that, that you had and your family had to uh, go through, and, and, uh, and many, many families mm -hmm. experience. And I think one of them is uh, your mother was doing well and was getting weaker and had a, a urinary tract infection and ended up in the hospital. And I'd like to talk a little about that hospital experience um, where there wasn't an awareness of what the needs of, at that point, someone in their late 80s or 90s might require. You could talk about that a little bit and then how that was addressed and how she ended up surviving that <laughs> one of those experiences. Yeah. Well, that was probably one of the worst things that I ever 
saw in my life with someone I love so much. And what is, is your correct in saying? She, I think she was 89. She'd been over at our house the night before. We had a little cookout. I think it was my daughter Emily's 18th birthday. She was doing great. And she went home, and, um, she, and she was cognizant. She was aware. She was fun to be with. The next morning, we had the caregiver that had helped with my dad stay over occasionally at night, and he called the next morning saying she was not doing, she was seemed really tired, and he was kind of worried about her, and I said, well, maybe we wore her out, you know, (laughs) and so just watch it. Well, then I'd call later in the day, and then the following day, he called, and he said he was very concerned about her because she wasn't making sense, so I went rushing over there, and... um, she pulled me over into her room, and she hadn't been eating and sleeping. And she said, um, Orlando was his name, and Orlando in the book, he said, he's trying to poison me. I was like, what? And then I said, of course not, you need to eat. And then she looked at me with eyes I'll never forget, saying, so you're trying to poison me too? Mm. Well, of course we got her right to the ER, and they ran some tests, didn't know what was going on. And what was very disturbing was that the hospitalist said, well, your mother has dementia, probably Alzheimer's, and this is common for this course to have these episodes. Well, if you read the book, the first half of the book is my dad developed Alzheimer's. I knew Alzheimer's. And I said, no, she doesn't. She is, she's not like this. Um, and they wouldn't believe me. And I did not have the right medical lingo. And that's so really some important chapters in the book, what the medical vocabulary you need. <clears throat> but most of us don't have it. So I was at the mercy. They didn't believe me. They thought I was just an hysterical daughter. They admitted her in the hospital, and she got worse, and she got worse. And finally, um, they put her on a drug to sleep. Um, it was on the beers list and shouldn't have had, had that drug. It did the exact opposite. It got her more wound up, couldn't sleep. Then she was finally like biting her cheeks and blood on her pillow and nothing. It, 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 was, it was terrible. And, and um, I kept begging for the doctors to come. Finally, one came, I think it was around midnight, and she collapsed in sleep. And he said, well, she has a urinary tract infection. And <laughs> I just was shocked because I said, well, are you going to examine her? And she was sleeping at this point. He said, at her age and at times like this, sometimes it's better if they never wake up. Well, what she wow. was suffering was not dementia. It was something called delirium. Yes. And delirium, we talk about it in the book, is misdiagnosed 75% of the time. It's, it affects your brain. It can be caused from a urinary tract infection when you're old, by drugs, by lack of sleep. If caught early and prevented, um, it can be treated that 40% of people who get this in the hospital when they're old will die and 40% more will be dead in a year. Entirely preventable. But most people don't know what it is. And the key, I'll tell you very quickly, is dementia, which is often mistaken called dementia, that progresses. It's a slow progression over time. Delirium, if you see it, is something that happens, a rapid change in behavior. It happens rapidly from a one baseline, the word is baseline, to a much declined baseline. That they're going into delirium. Now, if I'd had this book, if I'd had the words, if I'd been able to say, here's my mom's health history sheet, that's not her baseline, totally different treatment. But as it is, people, thousands of people daily are going through this, and it's suffering, and it's sad, and what makes me angry is 
it's treatable and preventable. So that's why we need to arm ourselves with these things and then change the system. So there are three things that you mentioned. One is the idea of baseline, which mm-hmm. is we're cooking, uh, we're having a cookout yesterday, and then today she's incoherent. Mm-hmm. That is not dementia. Mm-mm. So, but what you were describing is that people were not listening to you. They were not, that was the, uh, the doctors in that particular case were not listening. So that's one. The second is that uh, delirium, that it was easy for someone to say, oh, I'm seeing this behavior, it's dementia, and not understanding the delirium piece. So, mm-hmm. and third, from that beers list and what the book says and what you've written and what Dr. Ekstrom has written is that really sleeping pills are not recommended for people over 65 because of metabolism issues and things like that. And since insomnia is such a huge issue as we, for many as we get old, it's very interesting that this is probably something that if people are experiencing right, very, in a very common way. Mm-hmm. Would, would you say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you finally, how did you, how did your your mother get out of that situation? What what did you do? Well, that was took tremendous um, advocacy. It kept just, you know, it happens sometimes when you're in the hospital, you are being overseen by a hospitalist, which is a medical doctor, but he may not or she may not have all of your patient history. That's one reason, and I'll back up real quickly to say we have another appendices in the book that is critical, and we call it a health history sheet. And what that is, it has, you would have your doctor write it, and it says what their baseline is. For example, my mom's baseline, we finally got it done, was she was a sprite, uh, mentally well-oriented 90-year-old, and talks about their function and their mental function. And it has a thing called their activities of daily living. And, of course, it has their meds and all of that. If you have that and you have that in your hand and it's prepared by your doctor, you can go into the ER or go anywhere and the doctor will see this medically um, paper, this ba- what it is, and then you say, I want to, hopefully we can return to close to this baseline because usually what happens in the hospital with the step downs, you may get treated with your urinary tract infection, but what happens while you're there, you get what's called a hospital-associated disability. So she talks a lot about how we can prevent that and what we can do in hospitals to make them safer. Once again, what's, what's not being done right now. But for my mom, they transferred her after two weeks to a skilled nursing center with the idea that she was dying. Um, I didn't believe it. There are there definitely is a time when you do let go, and I think there's times when you're told to let go that I just, in my gut, knew she wanted to live, and this was not the way I wanted to see her go in this midst of suffering. And they continued some um, antibiotic therapy, and we worked with her, and she pulled through. But it took a fight of about three weeks, um, and then it took a, a kind of a long rehab, but then, then we got a geriatrician. <laughs> who's kind of was a lifesaver, who understood that and who told me what you experienced with your mother was probably one of the worst things anyone can ever go through with a loved one. She was had delirium. And so through her, I realized there was such an understanding out there I wanted to know more about because I, I, I see it happening to other people. And that, again, is how this book came about because when I met Dr. Ekstrom, I said, um, 
if you can give me 20 or 25 things that you as a geriatrician and a researcher and a practitioner know, but the general population doesn't know, I can craft a book around that because I saw just about everything happened to my parents over a course of 14 years. And that is what it's all about. These are the things geriatricians see on a daily basis. And um, as they say, most of them are treatable, preventable, but we need to change our thinking and then change the political discussion and change how we think about aging. So one of the other things is why aren't people going, why aren't young doctors becoming geriatricians? And it becomes a financial thing. Mm-hmm. That uh, I, I think it's important to say that if you're most, many of those clients are going to be on Medicare, Medicaid, those kinds of things, which pay doctors the least amount. Right. And therefore, really, if you have an entire practice based on that, you can't pay off your the, the, all the loans that you had to take out to become a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. So instead of uh, becoming a caring, getting into uh, this idea of, of care, you have to get into the very practical left brain, we must pay our our bills, you know, and mm-hmm. and I and I think that's another big piece we have to talk about on the p- political level about how we how we fund our medical system and 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 our providers so that people can actually do the doctoring that I, I think that genuinely most doctors want to do. Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with you on that because I think most doctors go into medicine. Um, especially you think about primary care, really a desire to help and reduce suffering, but the way the system's set up with these 20-minute visits and or less and insurance paying just for procedures but not an hour-long visit of a doctor looking at your feet or talking to you, how do you feel now that you're, you know, your husband passed away, how are things going, and looking at everything interacts with everything else when you're older. So we're kind of set up to look at a one-system symptom problem. It doesn't look like that when you're older. Everything combines, and you need someone with a tremendous mental understanding of how these things work. And um, But the re- as you say, the reimbursement, geriatricians, primary care, and pediatricians are the lowest paying by far, and so they can't manage to run an office. Um, hospitals won't employ them because they don't get reimbursement for them with Medicare, and so it's, it's a real problem. The other thing uh, about the advocacy piece, uh, at times with your dad, too, who was suffering from Alzheimer's, the idea of getting disoriented in a hospital or getting disoriented when moved out of a familiar surrounding and then being told that, well, it's time to go. And then someone else choosing a nursing facility, someone else saying, this is what's happening today. You experience that, too. And I think that's that's another uh, big big situation, again, with, uh, with the system that, well, Medicare is not going to pay or your insurance is run out and now we have to move you and it has to be done today. Mm-hmm. How did you advocate or, uh, that one? Or would you, how did you get him back into a good facility that, that was uh, in his best interest? Oh, once again, um, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't good because when he got transferred, they call it continuity of care. His orders didn't go with him after he broke his hip. He was um, put in a crowded nursing facility and kind of pretty much forgotten. And, again, he was actually dying of something of dehydration while in the nursing facility. And so it was just, it was just such a hard time to see these parents that were, had been fantastic people. They 
volunteered so much. They've given so much in, in their lives and contributed. But when they got old and they got, my dad got dementia or my mom got sick, society just wrote them off and forgot them. And that was nothing I was ever prepared to see, ever. I was sure that there'd be all these things. My dad, of course, was a physician. He was, he was a professor at Oregon Health and Sciences University. He um, volunteered at nursing homes. He did all these lovely things. So, of course, there'd be hospitals and doctors and systems that would take care of them. And it's not true. There weren't there. And so that's why I had to advocate, and that's why I am so excited with the chapters that are vetted by Dr. Ekstrom that show things we can do and insist upon. And um, I think that's the, the crux is that to face these things and to advocate, because right now it is still, for most people, it's still not set up well. And and if you don't have an advocate, what do you do? And a lot right. of people over 75 have no one. And it kind of breaks my heart to think of these people suffering alone and in silence. So I think just having these discussions, instead of saying, I don't want to think about getting old, well, of course, this may not be the most pleasant thing, but as you say, there are things we can do for <clears throat> healthy aging and keeping our brains healthy and having um, other things we can do to make life meaningful and purposeful and um, enriching for all of us in society to value this stage of life and these people. Because they are us, as mm-hmm. as to quote a, a famous uh, cartoon character. <laughs> as we age ourselves and date ourselves. Okay, right here. Um, yes, the advocacy piece. The idea that you and your family had to learn all of this and do it by yourself is extraordinary. And that's what's happening every day, as you describe. And I do happen to know, because we had a personal experience in our family, not with uh, an elderly person, but with someone with a disability, with a uh, cognitive disability, who was in a nursing home and was not being treated for a MRSA, which is a very severe toxic uh, infection, staph infection. And we had to find, and through... Fortunately, through some personal connections, we found an elder care advocate who actually was able to advocate for this 58-year-old individual. But it was all the same thing um, that you're describing. And our experience, at one point, um, the the sister of of this individual was – I got a phone call saying they put me in a room and are interrogating me. That, and telling me that they have to get him out today because Medicare won't pay. Mm-hmm. And she said to them, well, the only thing missing here is a, a bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling. That was the level of care. Um, they were threatening. And, and so people who were very nice before all of a sudden were, no, he has to leave right now. Mm-hmm. And the advocate had to say, well, wait a minute. This is illegal. And there was an illegal as- aspect happening. And from what I read in your book, the idea that they said you, she's, your family member is leaving today it was really not a legal thing. So there's so many levels of, of, how, of how these things have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and that, yours was a number of years ago. This was just about a year ago. So it's happening right now. People, and, and the finding a nursing home that's, that's equipped and has the kinds of things that you needed, 
getting the PT, the physical therapy, legitimately. You had a, a situation where your mom wasn't getting the physical therapy. Those kinds of things are, are all part of what you're talking about, the political, the social, the, the personal, and the, and, and the cultural shift that has to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's good even, I mean, like an interview like this and just getting people o- developing awareness is so important because I do think what's going to necessitate the change is, and what's going to happen has to be grassroots. Because yes. I think the medical community, is, uh, the geriatricians know, and that's why they're saying this book can't come quickly enough. Because we talk about death and we talk about living, but we don't talk about these last years that are frail that can be so much suffering or so much better. And so I think the more we're aware of what these problems are and the more we advocate for the, this whole age group to make it a good time and a, a, and a um, comforting time and a meaningful time, can make all the difference, especially as these millions and millions of baby boomers are heading off into the uncharted waters that are not going to be very happy. Even if they can have money, they can have political standing, they can have education, it's not going to matter. They'll be ahead in the bed. Ahead in um, the bed, yes. mm -hmm. And that's what's so interesting, that the status that you've acquired doesn't matter in this situation if there's not an awareness of what the needs are and what the what the um, what is what would be good compassionate medicine, mm-hmm. and that means treating, mm-hmm. and that's that's the thing I think that's a, that's a big deal. When you we talked about that a little bit before this this idea that that even if you're 86, you need to be treated if there's something treatable. Mm-hmm. And but you need to be have it done safely, no, and and that's where the geri- geriatrician would come in, and that's where a, a wise understanding of of what that aging process is is so important. I just want to tell people if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Marcy Cottrell Hool, co-author of The Gift of Caring: Saving Our Parents from the Perils of Modern Healthcare. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and you're listening to a Healthy Options special program on Community Radio WERU. So the other piece is you were doing this, and your family was doing this for 14 years. And let's talk about being a caregiver. Let's talk about what, how, does, how does one take care of oneself? How, does, how do you approach that caregiving role? Yep. That's, that's hard. And, um, you know, you have the ups and downs, and um, you're going through it with my dad with Alzheimer's and then my mom seven years after that. It, it's, uh, and millions of people are going through this, and one of the statistics, another scary one, I'm giving you the whole litany, but well, they're saying in good. the next 20 years that almost every middle-aged child is going to be a caregiver. And so to put that burden on them is very hard, but that's what, what we're heading into. Um, I think it's um, you have to do things for yourself. You really do because I what I came to understand was what my parents really wanted of me was not just to do all the daily functions. And if you could afford any of that to get extra help, that was meaningful because to try to do that and provide the emotional support, you, you just get you get worn out and worn thin. Because what they really want maybe is just for you to hold their hand someday or just smile at them or tell them you love them because even when someone gets Alzheimer's or dementia, there's still a way you, they don't lose that emotional intelligence. 
And so those times can be exhausting and they hurt because you can't, you really can't rescue what the end process is going to be. They're going to decline. They're going to die. But to share that love and to share that time of meaning, um, and so that means taking care of yourself so you can provide that. Those are the times that really are beautiful because you're giving them what they really need, and that is that emotional connection. And um, But we talk about in the book, care and maintenance of caregivers. What are some things you can do? What do you need to do over the long term? Because I think you carry guilt because... For me, for example, um, we had two young children during this. My parents are getting sick. You're in that squeezed generation. You're trying to work. I was supposed to write a new book. I couldn't because I couldn't concentrate well sure. enough. So all of those things. But yet, once again, if we can share that load with each other, what I'm realizing from this book so much is that so many people are going through the exact same thing. And to recognize you're not alone, because sometimes you just feel isolated. You feel like um, no one understands that the medical system may say you're wrong and you've got everything pulling at you. But to recognize if we realize that thousands of us feel the same way, we can hold each other up because we're going through this together. And what can we do to ease that suffering and make it more empowering and then taking care of ourselves at the same time? There are ways to help with that, but you have to have an awareness of that too. And the wherewithal to actually not think that it's all on you. It's, mm-hmm. This is it. Mm-hmm. If I don't do it, no one else will. Now, the guilt piece is, so, is interesting. And even uh, at the end of the book, I, I was just so uh, gratified that you were actually sharing some of your guilt, some of your doubts, some of the feelings that you felt <laughs> bad about. Uh, you know, this idea, will this end? Won't this end? I feel bad. Of course, I don't want her, anyone to die, but wait a minute. <laughs> You know, all of those conflicting feelings, which are so normal as part of a grief process. and uh, But it was very brave of you, I thought, and, and wonderful to share, to, almost to give people permission to say, you know, you're not going to feel good all the time about, about what's happening. You're not going to always feel, oh, yeah, I definitely want to come over and take you to the doctor. Of course, that's what I want to do now. You know, (laughs) right? Right. I mean, that's real. It's it's like, thank you. Of course, I'd like to drop everything. You know, (laughs) and uh, and now we have to go here. You know, there's going to be a little of that. Oh my goodness, Mm -hmm. I am so tired. Really, really. As I think you mentioned it in in terms of your mom and a rash. Right. Really, this is it. We have to go to the dermatologist. Great. (laughs) (laughs) And I think when you're squeezed. Too, as I said, sometimes I felt like a bad wife or a bad daughter or a bad sure. um, parent, and I saw a lot of people who didn't have sick uh, parents or whatever or loved ones um, being able to do the same like looked like to me they were taking all their kids to Disneyland, <laughs> we looked at Facebook, all these great things, and we were once again we're celebrating a, my daughter's 21st birthday in the in the hospital, and yet I'll go back to this. You do see the real, some real nuts and bolts about life. I think you develop uh, empathy and understanding, and it did not ruin our children, even though at times I thought for sure they were not getting, they never went to Disneyland, and we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't do it. But they both became doctors, and they are very, very empathetic human beings from what they saw, and they love their grandparents. It wasn't comes- easy, but um, there is good that comes from this, too. 
Well, it certainly showed in, in, in the book and how, and how you wrote that about, about that relationship. Um, and of course, your, your father was a, a, a surgeon, and so that there was, a, there was a, a model of that as well in the family. So, yeah, but the idea that you, you actually uh, expressed all of those resentments, as it were, or frustrations, let's put it frustrations, is, is wonderful because it, it is something that people feel guilty. We can't, we can't um, ever have a feeling. We can't let those feelings come in, you know. Right. So thank, thanks for doing that for everybody. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I thought it has to be, the reason I think the book touches so much of a chord is that it was not some memory. Because one thing I did to uh, try to deal with it myself, was, since I couldn't write books, I, I just didn't have the mental acuity to do it. But I kept journals. And so I had lots of journals as I went through it. How I dealt with it was journals. So that's really what my story is from how I was feeling, how I felt during all of that, what happened. And so I think that's the where they, it comes across very real-time and um, people identify with it because it isn't just trying to remember how I felt. It was how I felt. <laughs> yes, very present. Mm-hmm. And not everyone's a writer. So there are other ways that people can, can follow and express those things, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever it is that works for you. You know, there. Th- that's that's the uh, I guess the takeaway. Find something that gives you the outlet to express what what's really going on. Either it's talking to someone, or I don't know, drawing a picture if you're an artist. Whatever, uh, whatever that outlet is to get. Even you were a runner. Even just getting out there and taking care of yourself, to going for a walk. Right. You know, and and I think you brought up something too. This idea of you can afford it, get health care. Uh, you know, get AIDS, get that kind of thing. Why isn't it something that is just part of our healthcare system, that this is how we take care of each other as we get older? I think that's a really good point, and that's where I think Medicare needs to change, because as we know, a physician can order any drug for any Medicare patient at any cost, but that physician cannot order a substitute caregiver or housing or except maybe by arranging a nursing home admission. So there's a real mismatch of service availability with the priorities of frail elderly people. And that engenders, I guess, uh, engenders high costs as well as frustration and heightened fear of decline and death for frail elders. So it sounds like uh, you, you also showed the uh, ups and downs of hiring uh, people. <laughs> <laughs> You know what you have to look for, and and yeah. the, and some of the signs. Uh, you know, of course, we all hear wonderful stories, and you have many wonderful stories about people who move into the family and are absolutely devoted and very, very energetic and devoted to their that profession, as it were. And then those who, uh, you know, miss the mark, uh, mm-hmm. are are taking advantage or not uh, being as present as as someone needs to be when you're leaving, when you're caring for for someone who's more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Definitely. We, we saw, as, as the book shows, it saw a, quite a range of, of caregivers. And, um, and there's a range of nursing homes, a range of assisted living. There, it's just amazing how it's just not it's something you just step into and feel comfortable with. You really still have to be involved. And um, we saw the good and the bad and the ugly. But... Uh, Learned a lot as we went through it, and basically just still, um, 
I think it's learning to value this part of life. The more we value it, the more we discuss it, the more that maybe I think we can make healthy choices and changes. And it's interesting because, as you said at the beginning, I'm a biologist, an ecologist. And one thing I always look at this, at aging, is this, uh, what we call the old growth. Um, in ecology, you have a, a succession, and it goes from young pioneer species and then middle age and old growth. And it wasn't until long ago when a lot of people looked at an old-growth forest, these were scientists, like maybe 20 years ago, looked at them as decadent. Uh, there's a lot of down logs. They weren't of value. Now we come to realize, we realize that the old-growth system that gives the genetic potential and the life to all the other age classes, they're terribly important. They're not just decadent systems. They add to the richness and the stability and the health of all the other classes. So I kind of look at old age the same way. These people have stories to tell. They have things they can share with us, their wisdom and their life that can add joy and understanding and depth to all age classes. So that's the scientist in me coming out. But it's just a different idea. You know, it's interesting that you say that, but as in any scope of behavior, any group, everybody is different. And sometimes people are irritable mm-hmm. when they're, you know, and, and sometimes there is, you know, if you, especially if you're having cognitive issues, you may not be able to express yourself. You may be a, a little violent because you're in pain. You may not be able to, you know, you may not be pleasant to be around, although, you know, and so there's that Understanding, too, and I think you talked about it as intelligence of the heart, of caregivers bringing that vitality and really understanding that there is that spectrum of emotion, you know, not to romanticize, like every, all of us, every elder is not going to be uh, (laughs) pleasant and wonderful, (laughs) just like every individual, you know, there are people who are annoying. (laughs) We all, you know, there's, you're really hard to treat. You know, Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so. <laughs> and some of that is just can come from pain that's yes, not, and that's what that's I was not recognized. And because, as you say, when people get dementia, right. they can't just say on a scale of 1 to 10, how are you feeling? They right. can't say that. They more react. And so, as Dr. Eckstrom says, a lot of geriatricians know many of the undesirable kinds of interactions can really be because of pain. It could be a... Um, a sore tooth. It could be this, and you have to almost play detective. What does what works? Is are they in pain? What can we do? How can we make life um, more comfortable? And what are these reactions saying? And so she gives a lot of good tips about that. Yes, very good tips about about how to how to uh, assess that kind of thing. But I do like that idea of the, I think that that phrase, the intelligence of the heart, that you're coming into a situation with creating, looking at what's in front of you as a care provider, as a, a medical provider or a family member, what is the best thing we can do to create the best level of functional, if it is functional, you know, independence or idea of ease and comfort? And, and at the end, there was this idea that palliative care, which we think of um, perhaps as just, you know, pain medication or something like that, that actually that's happening through, as a spectrum, of, yeah. of that, that, what you call about that last phase of, of life. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yes, I think you hit upon something so, so important because um, 
palliative care is something you don't hear much about, and yet, as Dr. Ekstrom says, that's the most important thing that geriatricians do. And the word comes from palliative, from Latin, palliere, which means to cloak. And providing, literally, it's cloaking a patient and the patient's family with comfort and system and symptom relief and love. And as I said, it doesn't matter whether that person's old and dying or perfectly healthy. It's helping that person feel good. That's the overarching goal. It means stopping medications that cause the side effects. It means starting meds that relieve symptoms like pain and utilizing diverse therapies, such as art therapy, relaxation techniques, and um, other other modes of therapies, and even massage and um, acupuncture to improve physical and mental health. Um, so I think people erroneously think of palliative care as doing nothing, and it's, that's the farthest thing from the truth. It's like making every day the best day possible, and that is so, so important. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we could just continue on here. There's just so much more. I feel like we've, we've said so much, but yet we've just touched the, uh, the, uh, the tip of the iceberg, as it were. Um, I want to thank you uh, for tuning in today. I want to thank you, uh, Marcy Cottrell uh, uh, Houle, for sharing the story and sharing your book and sharing all the um, important information that you have today. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today to Healthy Options, the special. And again, the book, which Marcy Cottrell Hull wrote, co-wrote with Dr. Elizabeth Ekstrom, is The Gift of Caring, Saving Our Parents from the Perils of Modern Healthcare. And for more information, the website is uh, www.thegiftofcaring.net. And there'll be more information as we put this up on the archives. I want to thank Amy Brown for engineering. Many thanks to Petra Hall for production assistance. And thanks, as always, to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it along with other healthy option programs on the Public Affairs Archives at WERU.org. And it will be streamed online at WERU for two weeks shortly after the show. Thank you again, uh, Marcy Cottrell Hool, and I'm Rhonda Fyming wishing you the best for all your health.